Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Good morning. Just in case you didn't know, yesterday was Rob's birthday. So happy birthday, Rob. If you have not had a chance yet to sow the seed of walnut brownies, uh, go ahead and, and make sure to do that. With frosting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chocolate frosting. That's right. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, our almighty, eternal, merciful and loving God. You've given us your word as a lamp unto our feet and to light our path. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit this morning, you would open and illuminate our minds so that we can understand your word that you have written and revealed to us. Father, we ask that you would conform our lives our hearts and our minds to what we have understood in your word so that we may be pleasing unto you. We pray this to you, our Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, there's no neutral feelings towards to-do lists. You either love them or you hate them or you you just don't use them. Does anyone here use to-do lists on a regular basis? Okay. Okay, so mostly just this side. I wonder what that says, sociologically. Uh, Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sometimes they're needed. So you start your day by writing out a list of things that need to get done, right? I mean, it's it's helpful. It can keep you focused, um, help you not to forget things. It's simple, short, to the point. And, and that's kind of what Paul gives us this morning in our passage. In our passage today, Paul unloads basically a list of things that he wants to tell the Philippians and us to do. They're, they're short, kind of staccato statements that aren't necessarily connected. Um, he, he doesn't build an intricate argument like he does earlier in Philippians. He, he doesn't pontificate on some point of theology he just gets out his, his gospel imperative machine gun and blasts away. Rapid fire gospel commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And this is normal for, for Paul at the end of his letters. This, this is the pattern that he uses. These statements that we'll find this morning, they, they don't have a grammatical connection to one another. Normally, in in the other sections we've seen in Philippians, Paul says, well, there's this truth, and here's why it's true, and here's how it will affect you. And he kind of builds his argument, but not here. But again, this is normal. In almost all of his letters, Paul spends the first major chunk or section detailing the gospel, the greatness of God, the greatness of the grace of God, the sinfulness of sin, the majesty and wonder of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and then in the second half or section of his letter, he just lists out, now here's what your life should look like in response to the grace of God. 
He starts blasting away at how exactly this should play out in our lives. Theologians call this the the indicative imperative distinction. So an indicative is just a fact, something that is true. So Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's an indicative. An imperative is a command. So now do this, live this way in response. And this order is extremely important. We can't get it backwards. We have to understand that, especially this morning as we look at all pretty much imperatives, commands, things to do. They are grounded in the indicatives of the gospel. So in other words, we can't accomplish any of the to-dos found in Scripture unless our faith is already in the it is done of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul orders it this way. In other words, the commands we find here this morning are not things you need to do if you want to be right with God. They're not a step-by-step process to make yourself right with God. It's the opposite. The commands we find in Scripture, and specifically here in Philippians this morning, are things that people who have been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ seek to fulfill now by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the soil out of which grow a gospel-centered life. And we cannot reverse those two. This is why Paul said in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live your life in a way that displays what you believe about the gospel. And so the continual effort of the Christian life is a continual reminding each other and ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a continual effort not to earn God's love or salvation, but rather to live in light of it. So as we look at Paul's rapid fire commands this morning, we must remember that he has spent the rest of his letter grounding everything that we'll hear in the gospel and grace of God. And so let's, let's look at what we have this morning. Now we're going to see this morning is simple. We're going to see what a life governed by the gospel looks like. And Paul essentially gives us five commands and one fact. Five implications of the gospel for the Christian life. Five to-dos, if you will. If you believe in the gospel, this is what your life should look like. What does it like, look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? What does it look like to work out your salvation in fear and trembling? That's what Paul exposes for us this morning. Let's, let's look at his word. Turn with me to Philippians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And here's what the text says. Notice the rhythm. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, 
think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first command we see here, the first mark of a life governed by the gospel is this, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. The the Christian is to be continually finding his joy in the Lord. The the Christian is to be continually looking to God and being filled with joy because of who he is and what he's done. Paul states it plainly and clearly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now again, you might need to be remembered that in English we don't really have this. In English, we just say words and depending on the context, we know whether it's commanded. But in Greek, there's a specific tense that you put something in if you want it to be a command. It's what we find here with our word rejoice. It's a command. This is something we must do. That's his emphasis. Do you, do you see it? He says it twice just so that we realize he really means it again. I'll say it again. He says, rejoice. And not only that, but this is about the fifth time he's commanded us to rejoice in the letter of Philippians, not to mention all the rest of the New Testament. Rejoicing in the Lord is critical to the Christian life. That's why Paul keeps repeating throughout the letter. And then here at the end, he says it twice in a row. It's like he's, he's grabbing us by the shirt and saying, you've got to rejoice in the Lord. And, and let's notice some things about this command. First, it's, there's, there's no exceptions given. It's not dependent on our circumstances. Paul doesn't say we are to rejoice in the Lord only if our life is going good. Only if we have health, wealth, and prosperity. He, he doesn't say we are to rejoice in the Lord only if we feel like it. Look what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Always. Not sometimes. Not Monday through Friday. Always. Always without exception. We are to rejoice in the Lord. Always. Our rejoicing must not be based on our circumstances or our emotions or our whatever it may be. We are to rejoice in times of prosperity. We are to rejoice in times of peace. We are to rejoice in times of plenty. We are to rejoice in times of celebration. We are to rejoice when everything is going our way. But we are also to rejoice when, when nothing is going our way. We are to rejoice in times of darkness. We are to rejoice in times of despair. We are to rejoice in times of confusion. And we are to rejoice even in times of persecution. You see, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. That's what Paul says, always, always. Unless you might think, well, Paul, that's easy for you to say. Don't forget the circumstances of his writing. Paul is in prison as he's writing this, sitting and awaiting the sentence whether or not he will be executed. Eventually, he was executed. Paul is not saying this in some type of trivial, we'll just be happy type of way. That's not what he's saying. Paul knew despair. Paul knew trouble. Paul knew that feeling when everything is going against you. He makes this plain. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes this. Just, just, just contemplate this man's life 
and how he must have felt. He says this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And that one especially catches me because being shipwrecked is not something that like humans are doing to you. It's literally like the winds are in God's control. God, I'm going to share the gospel. And he was shipwrecked three times. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And it doesn't end there. Paul tells us in First or Second Timothy that at that point, towards the end of his life, most of the people he knew had betrayed him and left him. Paul knew what it was to despair. Paul knew what it was to feel like everything was working against you. And yet here he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Well, well how? That's the question. What does that mean? Well, the key is in the phrase, in the Lord. He, Paul's not just saying just be happy or just rejoice just in general just because. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. I mean, no one doesn't want to be joyful. So why are we? Because we focus on the wrong things. We, we try to rejoice, but we don't try to do it in the Lord. We think, well, I just need to be joyful. I just need to rejoice. I'm just going to white knuckle and I'm going to be joyful. That's not how it works. You can't think enough positive thoughts or make enough declarations of how joyful you are. That's not what Paul is calling us to here. He calls us to rejoice in the Lord. In other words, at all times we must rejoice in who God is and what He has done for us. This is not a joy that is ignorant of the troubles and struggles of life in this world, but one that rejoices in God and in Christ in the midst of our struggles in this world. Knowing that God has overcome, He has purchased our salvation and that He is bringing restoration, justice, and reconciliation to this world. This joy comes from meditating on these eternal truths. Sometimes we have trouble rejoicing in times of prosperity because we get so caught up in the distractions of life. We are to rejoice in those times as well. Again, in the same way, by remembering who God is, by meditating on what He's done. Sometimes it is hard to rejoice because maybe of the pain you're feeling or, or the loss you're feeling. But again, that's misunderstanding what Paul's calling us to here. And I believe if Paul walked through the door today, not, I mean, first of all, after reading that description of his life, can you imagine what he looked like? I mean, he probably walked with a limp. He, he must have just been awful to behold. But beside, that's beside the point. If he walked through this door this morning, I think he would take your hand, put his arm around your shoulder and say, look, I know, I know it hurts. 
I'm not saying that your life isn't painful, but look to Christ. Look at what he's done. Look at what he went through. Look at what he is doing. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he amazing? Rejoice in him. Not as a way to just get rid of your pain, but in the midst of your pain. Think on on who he is and what he's done for us. Rejoice in the midst of your pain. You see, no matter the pain in your life, God is good and he is faithful. And he will never leave you or forsake you in it. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is worthy of our rejoicing. Paul is clear here that joy is a defining mark of a believer in Christ. Again, not a trivial, shallow joy, but a deep, abiding joy. Who Christ is and what he does, has done for us is so radical. It's so incredibly amazing, so eternally glorious that joy must mark our lives in all seasons. And it might look different in different seasons, and that's okay. Because we have been delivered from the power of sin and death. We have been claimed by the King of Kings. We have been adopted into His family. And we have been written into His inheritance. And in our Lord, who has accomplished all this on our behalf, we rejoice. John Calvin sums the point up sums up the point of this verse well. Listen to what he says. So simple, but profound. He says this. The sum then is this. That come what may, believers, having the Lord standing on their side, have amply sufficient ground of joy. Come what may, believers who have the Lord on their side have an amply sufficient ground of joy. God is our sufficient ground of joy. He is enough. Come what may, God is enough. Paul knew this, and he lived it. The Philippians saw him live this, and he's calling us into the same glorious reality. So together this morning, let us rejoice in the Lord. Not just this morning, but always in the midst of everything. So that's the first command. But he just quickly moves on to the next. Second, look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And again, it's hard to see this in English, but this is a command. It's it's phrased as a command. Now the word translated here, reasonableness, is is maybe easier to understand what he's getting at by translating it gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Your your graciousness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. It's, It's this idea of patient enduring, a patient enduring of abuse without retaliation. It's the type of character quality that diffuses conflict and brings peace. That that is to be the mark of every believer. And that's a hard word. Because we're not all naturally wired that way. Uh, probably the, the best illustration I saw of this was, was recent. Uh, th- this quality of gentleness, reasonableness. Did you guys see the video of that congressman who was kind of like berating those people outside Planned Parenthood? It like just happened like this last week, right? There, there's two videos. There's one where he's, 
he's just kind of yelling at this older woman who's there. And he's, I mean, he's just harassing, just saying rude things, just making fun of her for, for standing up for what she believes in. And then there's, there's another one where he's, you know, yelling at these teenage girls. Must take a lot of courage. And, uh, and, then, and then after that, he turns to this young man. I don't know, he's probably, he could be anywhere from 20 to 30. You don't get a good look at his face. But he's just, I mean, he's just in his face, just harassing him, just making fun of him, just mocking his faith, mocking what he's doing. And, and this young man is just standing there. He just takes it. He doesn't respond. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't, you know, well, I'm going to show you why I believe what I believe. He just takes it. He's just kind of like, okay, okay. He's just waiting for him to leave. And he just continues on praying and passing out his flyers. That, that's what Paul's getting at here. That's a gentle spirit. One that endures abuse without the need to, ah, I'm going to get mine in. And and imagine if you were in that situation. I mean, there's such a temptation to just, well, I'm going to argue this guy and I'm going to destroy his arguments and show him why he's dumb. I mean, this guy's getting in your face. But this young man just gently just takes it and just continues on his mission. He doesn't even respond. He just waits for him to go away so he can continue sharing the gospel and passing out these flyers. That is what Paul is describing here. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness, your graciousness be known to everyone. It should be evident to everyone. It should be obvious. All all of us are commanded by the scriptures, specifically this one, to exhibit this quality in such a way that it's obvious to everyone. The Christian church should be known as a place of gentleness, reasonableness. OVBC should be known as a place of gentleness, reasonableness. You should be known by everyone, he doesn't give an exception here, as gentle, reasonable, gracious. This is how your co-workers should think of you. It should be evident to them. This is how your wife should think of you. It should be evident to her that you are gentle. This is how your husband should think of you. It should be evident. Your brother, your sister, this is how even your children should think of you, as gentle, gracious, reasonable. Everyone that you interact with, even online, should know you as gentle, reasonable, gracious. That's what Paul commands us here. Let it be known to everyone by the way that you live your life. And this is, he's saying this to the Philippians because he knows that they are in a hostile culture. He says, I don't care what they do. You be gentle, reasonable. And, and some, some of the, there's like this like manly men response, right? Hey, that's, that's a girly quality. But that's wrong. As Christian men, we are to be characterized by this gentleness as well. And to the extent that we are not, we are in disobedience to the scriptures. And the the importance of this character quality can be demonstrated just by doing a quick look at some other scriptures. This same exact Greek word, translated here as reasonableness and as gentle in other other places, is a qualification for the elders. It's a qualification for elders. If you do not have this, you can't be a leader in the church. Paul says in his list in 1 Timothy 3.3, not a drunkard. And you can, you can see that how this word teases out by looking what he compares it with. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That's the same word there. And we see it in Titus as well. 
Again, speaking of the qualifications of elders. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy towards all people. These are the qualifications for the leaders of the church. And and not only is it that quality, that would be enough to show that it is a manly quality, but it is also this exact same word is used to describe Christ himself. Think about that. This word is used to describe our Lord and our Savior. Addressing the Corinthians, Paul uses this exact word to describe Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so like Christ, in our pursuit for Christ's likeness, we are all called to be gentle, reasonable, in a way that it is evident to all. From the stranger on the street to the people closest to us in our own home. Paul's meaning is clear and unescapable. We, we, we can't wiggle our way out from under it. To the extent that we are not known as gentle people, we are in disobedience and we need to repent and work on our hearts. We, we can't get out from under this by saying, well, that's just my personality. That doesn't make it not sinful. We must repent and change by the power and grace of God. So that's the second mark of a life governed by the gospel. The the second in Paul's list of commands. Joy and gentleness. And now Paul just lays out a fact. Look at the end of verse 5. This is the only one in the list that's not a command. He just says, the Lord is at hand. And this is another obvious one. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. In Paul's list of commands, it it almost seems kind of random because, again, it's not grammatically connected to anything. He doesn't say because or therefore. It's just the Lord is at hand. He's just listing off things that as he's closing his letter, you need to hear. The Lord is at hand. In the sense of, he's clo- there's, there's, two, there's two senses this could be understood as. It could be understood as spatially. In other words, the Lord is close to us. Like he's, he's with us. Or it could be understood as temporally. The Lord is near to coming, like Jesus is coming back soon. I think that because he leaves it clear, Paul Paul is specific when he wants to be specific. I think he's intentionally unspecific here, meaning both ways, because both are true. As we contemplate these commands, we must always remember that God is with us and that Christ will soon crack the sky And return in all his glory. We we must keep both of these facts in our hearts and in our minds constantly. The Lord is at hand. Don't forget that. And so the Christian is to be rejoicing, to to be gentle. To know that God is near and that he's coming soon. And and next Paul gives another command. I told you, it's just boom, 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 boom. This one. He says next, stop worrying and start praying. Stop worrying and start praying. Paul just removes all exceptions for all of these commands. Look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus 
Let me give a quick qualification as we talk about this. It's important with passages like this that we don't import modern psychological understandings onto ancient Greek words. Paul's not talking about a a medical anxiety disorder. He's not talking about clinical things like this. This is a passage about worry. Paul, Paul is coming against, right in our face, against our worrying. And so he says, stop worrying, start praying. Don't, don't worry about anything, he says. Instead, pray about everything. The, the language of this verse assumes that the Philippians were worrying about some things. So Paul says, stop that and start just giving them to God in prayer. I mean, what would they be worried about? Well, we'll think about what we've already seen in Philippians. They are in a hostile culture. There are false teachers trying to infiltrate the church. There are enemies of the cross trying to steal people from the church. There's internal conflict. And their dear apostle is in prison awaiting his possible execution. There seems to be plenty to worry about. And Paul's not ignorant of these things. In fact, Paul knows what it is to have things that by all worldly accounts, he should be worried about. It's ironic and funny, but so convicting that God uses a guy in prison awaiting his execution to tell us, hey, rejoice and don't worry. Because we can't just say, well, he doesn't know. He does know. It just melts away all of our excuses. He was a man who lived what he preached. But, but, look at, but again, look at the text. Paul doesn't just say, stop worrying. He doesn't just say, knock it off. He says, stop doing that and start doing this. Stop worrying, start praying. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Replace your worrying with praying. That is the solution. Lay out all of your worries, all of your troubles before God in prayer. Prayer is the means to combating a worrisome spirit. And I have to tell you, I've had so many opportunities, even just this week, to practice this. There's been so many times this week where something has happened, and you get that, you know that feeling where something happens, or you hear something, and that that worry starts to kind of bubble up, you know? You you can feel the anxiety start to set, and you can can hear your brain start playing that what-if game. What if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Well, well, if if this happens, then what about this? And at this point, I face a choice, and you face a choice as well. You can either go down that path, allow yourself to go down that path, or you can obey God's word and go to God in prayer. And so that's what I did. I made my request known to God with an attitude of of thanksgiving. I mean, I had to. I was preaching on this verse this week. There's a way of which it just sits over you like, well, are you going to or are you not? It's one of the blessings of preaching. And so I just prayed. Father, I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm so thankful for the ways that you've been faithful in my life. I'm struggling right now with this. Take it. And I just laid out what I was feeling to God. How it was affecting and what I was worried about. And I began to remind myself of the character 
of God and about the fact that he is good. He is faithful and he is in control. Even if I can't see exactly how he's going to work all these things out for my good. And that's what this verse is, is commanding. We've got to turn to God in prayer instead of going down the path of worry. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's what the scriptures are commanding of us. It's what God is inviting us to. He's essentially saying, let me worry about it. Give it to me. We're all going to face situations like this almost daily, from the smallest things to the biggest things. So you've got to make a choice. What will you do? Will you give in to worry and follow down that path? Or will you fight that worry by turning to God in prayer? Will you give in to worry or will you, in the words of the Apostle Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You see in this text in Peter, it's interesting. The means by which you humble yourself is casting your anxieties on him. You see, because when we, when we just hold on and worry and we're going to deal with it, that's a means of asserting that I can do it. I have to handle this. It's a lack of faith in God. Peter says, humble yourself by casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so I want to urge you this morning to be obedient to this text. It will bless your life no matter what happens. Turn to God in prayer. He hears, he cares, and he is good. You cannot be and you don't have to be self-sufficient. Make your requests known to God. There's also just the practical aspect. Worry does nothing but ruin our lives. It does nothing to help us. Jesus makes this plain. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do such a small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? In other words, he says, What are you hoping to accomplish? You can't do anything. You can't add an hour to your life. So then why are you worried about the rest? Give it to me. God cares for you. Trust him. Like I said, even when it doesn't make any sense. And the best part about this passage in Philippians, look what he says right after. It comes with a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see the connection. Pray. God's peace will come. Now this doesn't mean that God is just going to zap you and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, okay, it's gone, cool, I'm fixed. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying you're never going to worry about anything. It's not, it's not a quick fix. It's not saying God's going to fix everything. And it doesn't say as long as you pray about it, nothing bad's going to happen. It doesn't say as long as you pray, you're not going to experience any pain or any hardship. I would remind you, if you're tempted to think that way, both Paul and Jesus prayed this way, and both of them got killed. Paul ended up in prison. Paul got shipwrecked three times. So it's not saying that we'll just fix everything. But what it's saying is that in the midst of this, you can have the peace of God. As you pray, as you unburden yourself and cast your worries and burdens upon God, as you remember 
who he is and how good he is, his peace will come to you. Doesn't mean you're fixed. Doesn't mean your situation is fixed. Doesn't mean all your problems just go away. But his peace will come to you. It will guard you. And this image of guarding is is very vivid. You see Paul's writing to the Philippians. In the city of Philippi had a Roman garrison stationed there at this time. This, This word is a military word. It's the picture of a city with big walls and soldiers stationed all along the walls keeping guard. God's peace in Christ Jesus will guard our hearts in our minds. Well, what does that mean? Well, well, there's a sense in which it surpasses all understanding, so I can't explain it to you. (laughs) That's a tricky passage to preach. I mean, it surpasses all understanding. I don't know what you want me to tell you. Uh, But but there's a sense. Let me me try to give a sense of of how I conceive of this. And when you, we don't have time to go into this, but when you study the idea of peace throughout the Bible, here's what you see. God is sovereign. Okay, so he's in control. God is working his plan throughout history. In Christ, God has revealed his redemption, his plan of salvation, and ultimately his love and his plan of renewing all of creation. So as Christians, all of our hope is in Christ. All of our hope. And Christ himself, Ephesians says, is our peace. He will be victorious. He was victorious and he will be victorious. He will accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish. And on that final day, when everything is done, when we stand in the new heavens and the new earth, that is the peace of God. Harmony. And it's so amazing that it even surpasses our ability to comprehend it. But but knowing this, and trusting in this God, we are guarded in Christ Jesus. Because think about it, if your hope is grounded in that, if your hope is grounded in Christ, what can shake, what can shape it? What can shake it? Nothing. Nothing. If, if, our, if all of our hopes, all of our uh, everything else is in Christ, if our hope for peace is in Christ, if we cast all of our worry and anxiety on Christ, well, He is our peace. He is the stronghold and refuge of our faith. He is a sure and steady anchor for our soul. What can shake it? Nothing. So when we are tempted to worry, we go to God in prayer and meditate on these truths. So I would urge you again, obey God today in this. Don't take this lightly. Don't try to get out from under it by, well, that's just my personality. Don't do that. Go to Him in prayer. Stop worrying and start praying, Paul says. Rapid fire. And so we've seen this so far. We must rejoice. We must be gentle. We must know that the Lord is near and we must stop worrying and start praying. And now, Paul calls us to think rightly and focus on godly things. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Then he sums it up this way. If there is any excellence, there is anything worthy of praise. Now here comes the command at the very end. Think about these things. So let's simplify it. We are to spend our mental energy focusing on things that please 
God. We are to occupy our thought life with honorable things, things worthy of praise. We are to put before our minds and eyes things that God looks at and says, this is good. This verse is, is, a, is a filter. It's a filter for what we watch on TV and on the internet. It's a filter for what we listen to. It's a, it's a filter for what we allow our minds to dwell on. It's a filter for what we daydream about. It's a filter for what our hearts yearn after. It's a filter for who we even follow on Instagram. It's a filter for what we read. Because what we set our minds on shapes us. But how do we know that this is true? How do we know what is true? How do we know what fulfills these things? Well, it's not by our feelings. Not by simply what makes us feel good. I mean, there's plenty that makes us feel good that is definitely not fulfilling any of these things. It's not by what we enjoy. There may be many things that we enjoy that are not pure, not true, not honorable. So it can't be by that. It's not what the culture says is good because they say a lot of things are good that are not true, not honorable, not just, not pure. Now our standard for all these things are the very words of God himself contained in the Holy Scriptures. This is our, our standard, our rule for life and godliness. It's our standard because Christ is our king and it's his word. So this doesn't mean that, okay, well, you can only listen to Christian music and only watch Christian movies. That's, that's not what it's talking about. But the standard is serious. We must run everything that enters our minds and we set before our eyes through this filter. Because what we set our minds on shapes how we behave and how we think for better or for worse. And so God commands us, Paul commands us, think on these things. Filter your thought life through this lens. But not only are we to think on godly things, verse 9 Paul says, do them, practice them. That's the last command we see today. What you have learned, he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This sums up a lot of what we've seen in Philippians, doesn't it? Paul, Paul is simply saying, okay, so everything I've taught you, everything that you've witnessed in my life, do it. Put it into practice and God will be with you. And the verb here to practice is in, is in the present tense, meaning this is not a one-time decision. Okay, I will do it. This is a continuous action, a continual decision, a continual practice. In other words, we are to continually practice these things every day, day by day, moment by moment. We are to continually put into practice the words and commands that we find in the scriptures. We're not just to read the scriptures, but do them. We're not just to think nice thoughts about God, but obey him. We're not just to theologize and philosophize, but to practice godliness. We are to set out to intentionally, by the grace of God, obey the words of this text as well as of the rest of the scriptures. We are to think and we are to do. And again, this one comes with a promise. The last one said the peace of God will guard you. This one says the God of peace will be with you. God is with us as we fight sin. God is with us as we attempt 
to obey all the while relying on His grace and His power. The God of peace is with us. We are not obeying trying to earn His presence, but because He has come to us in Christ by grace through faith, we can put into practice the commands He has so graciously gives us because He has filled us with the power to obey by the power of His Holy Spirit. We are no longer enslaved to sin. So let us not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word, as James says. So what does a life governed by the gospel look like? Well, what does a person governed by the gospel look like? Rejoicing, being gentle, praying, thinking, and practicing. We rejoice in the Lord. We're gentle because of the Lord. We pray to the Lord. We think on the Lord and we practice the Lord's commands. These are the marks of a person who has submitted to Christ and whose life is governed by the gospel. These are the marks of a life being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is not a standard to measure yourself by and just feel bad. This is something to reform your life by in the grace of God and in the shadow of the cross. There's there's no way to earn God's love. That's not what these are. These are not a way to earn salvation. These are not, like we saw in our documentary, things to do so that you can then barter with God. Well, I did this, so now do this for me. These are the marks of someone who has placed their faith in Christ and by God's pure grace receive salvation. You can't have the peace of God unless you know the God of peace. And you can't know the God of peace unless you first have peace with God. And how do we obtain that? Paul tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not by our actions. Through Him, Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is the gospel. We could never earn God's love. We could never earn salvation. Outside of Christ, we stand guilty and condemned before our holy God. We are rebels against the King, but out of His love and mercy, God sent His Son to live among us, to live a perfect life and to die in our place. And He forever vindicated His sacrifice by raising Him from the dead in power. And now He is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for those who put their faith in him this morning. That is the gospel. And in light of that, we seek to obey. Peace, forgiveness, and hope are found through faith in Jesus Christ. So I would urge you this morning, if you don't know this peace, repent from your sins. Turn to Christ in faith. You will find him to be a merciful and sufficient Savior. Think on this text. For those of you who do know Christ, would you obey him this morning and the rest of your lives. Think on the commands that we've seen. Where, where do you need to repent? I want to give you a moment here to, of, of, to contemplate. This is a lot of stuff. Where, where have you fallen short? And again, this is not to just feel guilty. Sorry, oh, I'm so, you know. No, it's to, it's to ask God, to, to confess to God and ask Him to help. Ha, have you been setting your mind on impure things? Have you failed to obey that? Maybe you've been harsh and lacking in gentleness with your wife, with your children, with your husband, with your co-workers. 
Maybe there's something that you've just been worrying about. Give it to him in this time. Make your request known to him. Right here, right now, don't wait. So I want to give a moment of silence and then I'll close with scripture and pray. Let's just spend a moment in prayer and reflection. Let the words of this passage wash over your soul this morning. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. That's our prayer this morning. Equip us. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray this on the blood of the eternal covenant. We pray this through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.